This is episode 9 of Musicology with the Eagle. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Musicology with the Eagle. I am your host, the Eagle, and this week I'd like to open our ninth show with a heartwarming story of a man finding something very dear to him after decades of it being on the tip of his tongue. I recently discovered this YouTube video which shows a Congolese taxi driver weeping with joy after two of his customers identify a tune that has been eluding him since his childhood. The song in question was a gentle Taiwanese pop song lullaby, which he first encountered many moons ago with his mother back in Congo. One day, they had walked into a local Chinese grocer and heard the gorgeous melody playing over the PA system. His mother loved it so much that the owner gave her the tape to keep, and it soon became a cherished treasure in their family. It didn't matter that the song was sung in Chinese or that they didn't know anything about who sang it the meditative melody still had a universal, profound effect. Naturally, the man came to closely associate the song with his mother, and after immigrating to South Africa, the tape was tragically lost. Soon after that, his mother passed away, and the man was left heartbroken, having lost one of the strongest memories of his mom. He has been working for 20 years as a taxi driver, and every time he received an Asian customer, he would hum the song to see if a person could help him identify it, but to no avail. But two weeks ago, his first ever Taiwanese passengers gave him a breakthrough in his search, correctly recognizing the song as one of their own. The musical manhunt was over, and the couple let him hook up their phone to his car's stereo so that he could joyfully sing along to the unlikely hit. Have you ever had to search for years to find a special song that you had lost or never got the name of? Let me know your story. I'd love to hear it. It's almost been a week since the recent MTV Video Music Awards, and the hangover from the glitzy, garish event still continues if you take even a passing glance at music headlines. Over-the-top host Miley Cyrus made a ton of controversial costume changes. There were beefs between the biggest female pop stars, and Kanye West announced his not-sure-if-he's-actually-serious presidential bid for the 2020 U.S. elections. I used to follow the annual event semi-religiously, starting when our national TV broadcaster somehow showed a delayed broadcast of Eminem, Dr. Dre, and Snoop Dogg taking the stage in the 1999 spectacle, and peaking in the late 2000s as host Russell Brand's string of appearances launched his career in the USA. But my days of anxiously downloading the previous night's escapades are long gone, and for the first time this year, I could say the same for another one of music's biggest nights, the Grammys. Award shows are getting long in the tooth, and amidst falling viewership, the producers of these events are amping up the celebrity drama to cater to a younger fan base, seemingly focused more on style than substance. Now this is all sounding very much like a rant of an old man or disgruntled 30-something who feels depressingly out of touch with the modern pop world. But I'm not that old. It really wasn't long ago that I was tuning in with interest, hoping to see who took home which of the big awards. But the shift has happened quicker than you think, and I'm talking on micro levels. Look, a quick caveat regarding the VMAs. 
This show has long been associated with showmanship and performance, so I'm not expecting some austere, stuffy, formal event. But when the focus becomes less on the awards themselves, where airtime is cut down for the actual presentation of awards so that another tweetable performance can be stuffed in, then we are losing sight of the music, or at least some of it. This is why I started to move towards the Grammys in recent years, not just for the sense of history and respect between older and younger artists, but because of the sheer diversity of music on display and being awarded. I'm definitely not the biggest fan of modern-day country music. I'm more of a Johnny Cash outlaw. But I kind of appreciate now that almost every year you can get to see some of those stars on stage, performing and getting duly awarded for their efforts in that genre. You could at least learn or be exposed to something new. For all the attention being devoted to Kanye's quotable sign-off about his presidential ambitions, he actually made some valid points during his rambling 13-minute acceptance speech for the Michael Jackson Video Vanguard Award. Using an example of Justin Timberlake and CeeLo Green of Nas Barkley at the 2007 Grammy Awards, West decried the idea of pitting the top artists and musicians against each other for an award that should instinctively be a subjective one. Why the incessant need to appoint a winner within a group of people who are already living their dreams and didn't sign up for a sporting event? I quote, I still don't understand award shows. I don't understand how they get five people who worked their entire life, sold records, sold concert tickets, to come stand on the carpet and for the first time in their life be judged on a chopping block and have the opportunity to be considered a loser. One point he didn't raise was the lack of focus on those behind the scenes, whether it be the producers or engineers making the records, or in the case of the MTV Video Music Awards, the people that direct and film the videos. Granted, Taylor Swift giving the mic to her director, Joseph Kahn, was a surprising moment of limelight sharing on the night, but I get the feeling that it's becoming the exception rather than the norm. I know this because I personally know someone who was up for an MTV VMA this year, and he used to run around the garden with me playing cops and robbers, or sit next to me for hours playing video games. My childhood friend, Connell Thompson, along with his co-director, Brendan Canty, directed the brilliant, harrowing music video for Irish singer-songwriter Hosier's debut hit single, Take Me to Church, which was nominated for both Best Rock Video and Best Direction at the awards. I found this out only hours before the event, and suddenly my interest zeroed in on this award show within an award show. Like a sports fan supporting his local team, it became more than the event itself. This was a success story that him or I could have scarcely imagined back when we were kids. Their small production company, Feel Good Lost, got the rare opportunity to work with Andrew Hosier Byrne when he was still a struggling musician, and before he received widespread international fame, much of which could be attributed to the video's popularity. The black-and-white short film follows the relationship between two men in a same-sex relationship and the subsequent violent homophobic backlash, including a lynch mob attacking one of the men's homes and a horrifying beating that leaves the protagonist's fate unknown by the end of it. It takes a bold stance on discrimination based on sexual orientation, and the lyrics imagine Hosier's lover as a religion full of frustrating hypocrisy. But even at an award show which had an award for best video with a social message, there was no space for Hosier and his unlikely lads from Cork Island. According to my friend, they found out that the industry or professional awards are released online after the main event, 
and the best rock video winner was already announced during the pre-show. How confusing and how anticlimactic. So even if they had won, who was going to hear their speech? What were they even doing there then? The situation reeked of disrespect for the underdog and for the art form, despite the life-changing opportunity that they had to attend such an event. Looking at the list of performers from that night, it seems that Hosier, whose voice evokes a male Adele mixed with the vulnerability and emotion of Jeff Buckley and the mystery of Justin Vernon of Bon Iver, wouldn't have fitted into the pop extravaganza. The only semblance of a rock performance was Tori Kelly, a singer-songwriter herself, who briefly stood on stage with a guitar and delivered some soulful and melodic middle-of-the-road pop rock, preaching to the wrong choir. So next time you hear about an award show and you want to sigh with frustration at all the pop star's antics, think about those nervous-looking men and women in the crowd, perhaps feeling out of place and overwhelmed. They could be ordinary people about to step on a world stage under extraordinary circumstances. It's time to find a local team to support. This week, we have a new album from British indie rock band Falls called What Went Down. It's been a long, steady rise to the forefront of British guitar bands, and having been a fan of theirs since the math rock days of their 2008 debut Antidotes, it feels surprisingly deserved for Foles to be displaying such confidence and assuredness on their fourth album. It's evident in how quick it took for the band to lay it all down, just two months at a 19th century mill in southern France called La Fabrique Studios. Foles headed directly into the studio following the Holy Fire tour in support of their last album, and frontman Yanis Philippakis claims the energy from the live shows carries over to the new tracks, saying, We were playing like a ruthless, elegant machine. I was fortunate enough to see them twice on that tour, and for the pit stop that they made at Ramfest in Cape Town, South Africa, I was right on the stage barrier, mere meters away from the crash and thunder. It's not like they've ditched any of the fiddly intricacies of their early work, rather that they've mastered a sort of arena funk which incorporates grislier guitars and a surging propulsive rhythm section, less inclined to stop and start on a dime. I think that they are now seen as the feeling person's alternative to most mainstream rock groups coming out of the UK, and the spacious production and all-purpose longing that has crept in since their second album, Total Life Forever, has allowed Philippakis to perfect his throaty howl, bringing his vocals and lyrics more to the forefront. You could perhaps trace this back to one of the biggest songs from that album, Spanish Sahara, but I think the blueprint for Foles and Philippakis' current performance is based on two hit singles from their third album, 2013's Holy Fire. Firstly, you have the heavier inhaler template, most tangential to what we've come to expect from Foles, but whose highly charged, fierce aggression populates the title track of the new album. It gives a claustrophobic feeling to proceedings, and choosing to record at La Fabrique Studios allowed the violent, maddening atmosphere of the Saint-Rémy-de-Provence area to seep into the music. This is the place, after all, where acclaimed painter Vincent van Gogh came to recover and be inspired after having sliced off his own ear. When Philippakis repeatedly screams, When I see a man, I see a lion, at the song's thrilling conclusion, it sounds like a panic attack put to tape. The second template that has emerged is songs tapping into the lith, funky pop grooves of the highly danceable My Number. We see this in varying shades across the new album, fizzing out of the crisp second single Mountain at My Gates, 
or slowly unfurling in sultry fashion on birch tree, accompanied by light synths and warm melodies. Those are the two extremes one can expect, and falls slide effortlessly between them, whether brewing a pensive storm on albatross, or being caught in the middle of one with snake oil, its twinkly bridge a brief respite from the booming deep guitars. But if you want to have a taste of almost everything Falls has to offer, then best to take a bite out of the sublime Night Swimmers, whose persistent drum pattern, nerdy guitar noodlings, and synthetic bursts of brass harken back to their beginnings. It comes as no surprise, then, that producer James Ford had his fingers in this pie, he being a member of Simeon Mobile Disco, and having produced for the likes of Arctic Monkeys, Florence and the Machine, and indie pop sister trio Heim. The balance between sonic intricacy and pop sensibilities results as a dead heat in this horse race, with Foles winning yet another accomplished album. For our retrospective this week, we bring you words from a hip-hop genius, Jizza. The founding member of the Wu-Tang Clan has long been associated with lyrical dexterity and dazzling vocal rhythms, boasting some high-profile appearances on the nine-member group's debut album, 1993's Enter the Wu-Tang, 36 Chambers. Like fellow New York rapper Nas, his magnum opus solo debut has proved to be an impossibly hard act to follow. 1995's Liquid Swords is a quietly intimidating masterpiece of hip-hop, and probably the best Wu-Tang solo project of all, alongside Raekwon's only built for Cuban links. Jizz's cerebral, nuanced rhymes weaved gritty stories with elaborate metaphors and showcased a penchant for two Wu-Tang lyrical staples, martial arts and chess. So that's why I'm sidestepping the easy option and zeroing in on one of Jizz's later albums that builds a concept around one of his biggest passions and inspirations. 2005's Grandmasters is a collaborative album between Jizza and DJ Muggs of Cypress Hill fame that expertly blends the games of hip-hop and chess to reveal that the strategy, planning, and execution involved in both are not much different. The title Grandmasters also works on two levels. In chess, Grandmaster is the highest title a player can attain, and once awarded is held for life. Here we have two Grandmasters of the hip-hop game, one behind the turntables, one holding the mic, explaining the rules and pitfalls to everyone willing to listen. Bringing in Muggs to produce the album exclusively is a move that harkens back to the old-school Wu-Tang style of the early 90s, where de facto leader RZA controlled all aspects of the clan's empire, including the making of their music. His trademark ghostly beats and chopped-up, disembodied vocal samples laid the blueprint for what fans came to expect from a Wu-Tang record, and Muggs makes his presence felt in a similar vein, laying down a murky, dramatic, head-nodding backdrop that leaves lots of breathing room for Jizz's densely saturated raps. Despite the verses in the title, there's nothing adversarial between these two, and the synthesis is remarkable. I make a note of this because in Jizz's previous two albums, 1999's Beneath the Surface and 2002's Legend of the Liquid Sword, the often bland production would undermine the deft wordplay, and some of the collaborations were a bit cringeworthy and misplaced. So structurally, Jizza is back in film noir news reporter mode, and instead of the 70s kung fu flick samples that open or close early Wu-Tang songs, we have actual chess players discussing chess strategy and giving instructions and moves using algebraic notation. 
I never said that this was going to be a normal hip-hop album. Each of the songs allude to and incorporate chess slang and situations. Early on, we see Destruction of a God set the scene for a vivid account of crime and brutality, with a cinematic scope and a soul-stirring vocal sample. General principles and exploitation of mistakes introduce the ground rules and common errors, and each brings the chess theme sharply into focus. The former muses on the reliance of chess principles to navigate hip-hop and life. For example, in only the first four moves of a chess game, there are over 318 billion possibilities. In almost every instance, it's impossible for a player to consider more than a tiny fraction of choices. In order to narrow down the choices to ones worthy of consideration, players must rely on chess principles to make their decisions, and Jizza expounds the values of hard work without sacrificing integrity, embodying and respecting true hip-hop culture, and being aware of the possibility of betrayal in this brilliant hip-hop parable. The latter of these continues this evaluation of life principles with an excellent case study of a killer who was finally caught because of his mistakes, and the detailed analysis is almost forensic in its depth. Sometimes you just need a posse cut with some Wu-Tang regulars to release some tension, and Advanced Pawns ticks all the boxes, with piercing digital orchestration and textbook fluid verses traded with RZA and Raekwon. Speaking of members of the Wu-Tang, we also have a tribute to the then-recently-deceased Old Dirty Bastard on the song All In Together Now, name-dropping the original name of the group, and including a classic, unpredictable and crazy intro from the ODB himself. It's particularly moving, knowing that the two were cousins in real life. But this doesn't compare to one of the most smartly written songs on the entire album, purely for its audaciousness. Queen's Gambit sees Jizza go all the way to incorporate all 32 NFL football teams in a suave sex tale where he seduces, or perhaps is seduced by, the most powerful player on the board. Make sure to check the lyric sheet for this one and marvel at how he manages to fit them all in over only the most laid-back of beats. Nowadays, the Jizza's genius isn't just limited to making records and he's using his status in hip-hop and thirst for knowledge to empower those around him. Not only has he founded a non-profit called Science Genius, which engages high school students with science using hip-hop, he has appeared on famous astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson's Star Talk show to talk about the influence of astronomy on his music. Look out for his forthcoming science-themed album Dark Matter for empirical proof of that. Well, that's about all we can fit in for this week. I hope that you've enjoyed the variety of musical edutainment that we had on offer this episode. Keep searching, keep listening, and keep enjoying the wonders that music has to offer. I am the Eagle, and you have been listening to Musicology with the Eagle. See you next time.